This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Today we have with us Scott Willis, who is Green Party candidate for Tari electorate and is the manager of Willis Advisory on Climate and Energy Challenges and a director of Climate Navigator. Well, welcome to Community or Chaos. Hopefully you'll find some more community over the next year or two. Well, people have been... First, you can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. People have been predicting for a long time major damage to New Zealand from global warming or global heating. Could could the Clyde cyclone Gabriel and the damage it caused to the North Island be just a taste of what's to come? Could you talk about this? Yes, well, thank you, Marvin, and thank you for inviting me on today. And I think many of us feel a deep frustration with the events and the and the, 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 the way in which so much of the damage and destruction could have been um, avoided had we taken action earlier. I mean, we have the potential in Aotearoa to, to build thriving, thriving communities, and we just haven't taken those steps. So it, it, it's really clear that climate heating, the climate crisis, is bringing with, us, with it more extreme adverse events we will see more tropical cyclones we will see more flooding we will see more drought we will see fires and for us to adapt to that we need to be thinking more in a regional level but we also need to be um, spending time and and investing in mitigation because we while we can survive a bit of climate chaos if this, if if we warm to three or four degrees above, above um, levels, we are we are thrown into a situation that society won't be able to 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 thrive and society won't be able to continue. We've been predicting this, of course, for forty years now. I was saying thirty years, but it's more like forty. I've been thinking about it for thirty years, and people were thinking about it publicly before that. Uh, 
Was it then? Maybe it's been longer than that when I first started talking about it. But um, the politicians have paid little attention, and the power, the, the, and the main thing is the power structure has paid little attention to it. And we're talking about adaption. That means um, reconstruction of things before, you, before they were out. I mean, if you look at the English-speaking world, particularly the United States, and unfortunately New Zealand, Canada, and, and Great Britain, their infrastructure's deteriorated. Uh, they've been privatized, they've been uh, uh, cutting taxes, so when you cut taxes, you cut infrastructure uh -huh. uh, upkeep, you cut uh, the possibility of building infrastructure you need. And there's been no, no leader of any of the political parties in New Zealand and in um, Canada, and they have actually spoken about in a major way against neoliberalism, uh, broken totally and openly with neoliberalism, and willing to raise taxes, willing to, uh, including corporate taxes, willing to capital gains tax the whole lot. There have been people talking about the fringes of it and how we need more money and maybe we should raise taxes, but no real radical break with uh, the neoliberalism and the economic model we took on under labor in the um, late 80s. Well, I think, firstly, um, neoliberalism is problematic in that it's 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 assumed that we should bow down to the god of the market and and everything will be will be fine will be saved and clearly that is not the case the market can't provide uh, the market market values cutting down trees the market values digging up coal the market values digging up oil and gas so the market does not provide and we have I, 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 I do disagree to a, a, a point I mean in the Greens we do talk about the need to to manage to live within the limits of Papatunuku and, and our leadership it has been strong on it's for example talk about needing to live within the means but it hasn't talked about radically changing the tax system well, one of the proposals that's been put out, and Julian Genta has led the drive on on a um, an excessive profits tax, which is which is a, it's actually a relatively simple thing, and it's done elsewhere. But that is part of shifting things within the political process. And and if we look at Labor's current um, desire to address the cost of living crisis through abandoning emissions reduction projects and initiatives and we look at the opportunity to to ensure um, equity through through redistribution the the green proposal is a politically sensible and practical way of doing that and so I think you know working within the political system is is a complex task but there are options that we have and a, a, a larger green vote is going to get us better solutions that, that, that will deliver those results. Mm. Well, since we're there already, um, some people say that the um, um, 
Chris Hitkins is actually going for the middle vote and assuming that um, the Greens will pick up the left vote that he leaves behind and that they will go join in coalition after the election. Is this, um, it doesn't say a lot for his courage, but is this a correct assumption? Well, um, it clearly, it's clearly the case that under the new leadership of the Labour Party that climate action is, is way down the agenda. And, and that's problematic. That's problematic because we can't afford to be thinking in, in three-year cycles if we want to provide a future for our children and our grandchildren. We need to be thinking long-term. We need to be planning 100-year strategic plans. And, and so it's, um, it does seem that the climate actions are not receiving anywhere near the attention that they were receiving under Jacinda Ardern, and even that was woefully inadequate. So there's, there's space, if you like. I, I, I wish there wasn't political space for the Greens to, to lead on this, but clearly the Greens are leading on this and and have to because it, this is not this is a well above party politics. This is about about ensuring we have an <coughs> equitable distribution of resources. It's about ensuring we have healthy nature. It's ensuring that we take adequate and and and, and effective and urgent climate action to live within the limits of our planet, to live within Papua Tuanuku, and and that's that's the the, the bigger picture. It's not it's not just the short-term three-year cycle of party politics. It's ensuring that we, we, we employ plans and policy that will deliver long-term results. Do you think we've been lax and tardy in climate change mitigation? And the fact that we're still depending on the market for climate change mitigation, isn't that a shameful thing to buy carbon credits from poorer countries in order to make up for lack of climate mitigation? Could you comment on this? Yes, it is shameful. It is it is um, disgraceful that we're doing that. When we're we are um, thriving in our comfort, rather than taking steps at home, s- simplifying our lives, and and trying to be careful about how we do things. For example, we've just had the container scheme that was being proposed abandoned under the lo- latest um, latest. Um, um, a fire sale of, of policy by Labour, and and that's a really simple way in which we could we could start ensuring that we we reduce waste, and we could we could we could build healthy nature through having having a re- container return scheme. We've just abandoned the the, the cash okay. for clunkers policy. Those are those are really simple things. So we know what we what okay. we can do. Can you talk about both of those uh, to re- remind. Uh, listeners what we're abandoning before we're starting using it. The container screen, uh, scheme and the, what's the other one you mentioned? The cash for clunkers. Um, it, oh, uh, cash for old cars. Yeah. Okay, can you talk about this just a little? Briefly outline those two. Well, I mean, cash for clunkers is, is, a, is, a, is a good, a good um, way of addressing both inequality and and decarbonisation, and it's essentially 
offering money for for old dirty old cars so that so that families can can move to a cleaner transport option and that's problematic um, because we're, we're we're trying to do something it was government was trying to do something new didn't have it all sorted out but was a policy that we need to we need to get dirty dirty transport systems off our roads so we we we, we need to keep trying the the initiatives that are going to make a difference rather than abandoning them we've also abandoned the um uh, the, we're, we're, we're encouraging fuel, um, we're keeping a, 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 a um, reducing tax on on fuel so that we are encouraging further fuel um, consumption. And what we can be doing in place is is ensuring that we've got more effective public transport, centrally funded public transport for our urban centres, so that we can have safe, affordable, accessible public transport, so that people don't need private vehicles using up parking space and we can have livable cities that would be a really really positive first first step we have we have all kinds of um, transport options that aren't being employed and we have the the concern around our our circular economy approach we know that um, cash for 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 um, or the container return scheme means that we can keep waste out of the way we can keep um, plastic, etc., out of the waste stream. Wouldn't that save money in the long run? It would definitely save money, and it would also encourage people to to or and companies to use less 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 packaging. The subsidies for uh, less harmful, less carbon using cars. Was the subsidy going to be big enough so that ordinary families that were driving Nissan uh, could actually? to make a change to say hybrid or to something else I don't know if it's a question of if, is the subsidy big enough it's it's more a question of is is the is switching to an EV the only answer and I think that the clean car discount has been effective in in getting rid of internal combustion engine vehicles and replacing them with a number of electric vehicles that's been effective and it, it it could be higher. It, it it could be about right. We don't know, but I mean, it certainly has been meeting the targets that were set, and we are seeing that people want a lot of people want to move to electric vehicles. But we can't tell how big the demand for other other transport systems is because we don't have the the similar investment in public transport. We don't. We we've lost, for example. An, an overnight ferry between Littleton and and Wellington. Now that would be a, a really simple way of using a blue highway to to transport rather than driving or flying to to the other island. There are all kinds of things that are not that are invisible in this in this um, calculation, and I think we need to look at that an integrated transport system, including e-bikes and and. Um, urban design that enables walkable, mm. cyclable cities. If you had a, a good ferry system between Littleton and Wellington, wouldn't that also um, secure transport between the North Island and the south half of the South Island? Because you remember the Kaikoura earthquake. What happened to the transport mm. for mm. a while? Mm. I think we are underutilizing 
our potential or underutilizing our, our, our blue resources. And, and, and if we think of, or our blue highway, pre- previously, we're, a, we're an island nation. When Maori arrived, our, our seas and our, our rivers were the, 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 the transport pathways. When early, the early um, colonization by Europeans, we, we, we traveled the coasts. And, and in a climate, a climate changing world, we need to be harnessing that, that, the power well, of the wind the, and water. We actually had a, um, I believe, a, a cargo service that was somewhat subsidized by the government until the, until the late. Uh, 20th century. Doesn't all this go back to the idea that we won't raise taxes, that we that the private companies can do things better? Like we, most of our um, transport, public transport, was publicly owned until after the uh, 1980s until um, labor changed the playing field. And that's what I'm complaining about, is nobody's saying the emperor's got no clothes. <laughs> I think this, the, the, the situation has, has changed so dramatically. We've let the genie out of the bottle in terms of um, allowing or, or breaking up public, public services. Yeah, what if the private companies either won't or can't do the job. Well, I think what we've seen is a flourishing... Like, for instance, city, Wellington City Council and Wellington Regional Council actually wanted to take back public transport. They weren't allowed to under the present legislation, but they actually, that was on their wish list. Yes, and I think we've seen a flourishing of, of alternatives that, that we may not have seen had, had the system not been broken, but now we have an opportunity to, to reshape it and to build something that really does serve the community and reduces emissions. And so w- what we can do now is, is look at the, the public ownership of, of public transport in the urban areas and, and maybe support for the, um, support for the independent contractors for, for our rural areas to provide that service and keep our, keep our, our communities connected. So we've got thriving rural communities with well connected to our urban centres. If you were uh, going to Wellington often, and you had a, a you could get a fairly fast train to Christchurch and a ferry to to uh, Wellington, would you use that in spite of, instead of it flying? Uh, without a doubt. In fact, recently I I had occasion to travel to Wellington, and I did not want to fly, so I drove an EV to um, Picton and took the ferry across and and had had an EV in, in Wellington. Now, that was a low-carbon journey, but it was problematic in that I had to concentrate on driving through atrocious weather with roadworks, with camper vans, with, with trucks on the road. It was not a relaxing trip that it could have been in a train, in a passenger passenger train. And then, of course, the ferry was unreliable. We had we had delays, so it didn't travel when it was expected to, and and that that was um, a rundown in, in assets that has, has caused that. So it wasn't simple by any means. And if we were thinking about services for the 21st century, yes, we could have a train with internet connection where we could work 
and work while we were travelling, and and a ferry service, ideally something that would leave from Littleton, that would go all the way to Wellington, that could connect our, our island. So that would be a, an integrated system that that is entirely feasible with many of the resource or the, the assets that already exist, uh, and 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 a relatively uh, clear-cut investment profile. Oh, I'm gonna play a, oh, some music and then we'll come back. This guitar came from a timber, from the body of a tree, through the workshop of a luthier. Now it's on loan to me, and it's good company after dinner, and it fits my hands just fine. But someday another singer, with a pair of hands like mine, will coax out songs much prettier, still hiding in its strings. Sing stronger, braver words than I could ever sing And folks are gonna love it Of this I'm almost sure So I take good care of it Cause I'm borrowing it from her Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone Carry it for a moment Time won't loan it to you for long You don't own it, pass it along This here is my country Sometimes it's hard to recognize it But I count myself lucky To have been born inside it And I'm grateful for the rights Others struggle hard to win And you can be sure I'm gonna fight they try and take them back again Oh, and everywhere teachers Though some fell along the way And the words they said still reach us Just like you're teaching me here today And you may not speak it loud But it's clear in what you do And I hope to make you proud Cause I borrowed it from you Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone. You carry it for a moment, but time won't loan it to you for long. You don't own it, pass it along. Grab up all that's left to use Putting patents on discovery Making seeds that don't reproduce If our vision is so narrow Seeing only bought and sold We'll end up like the pharaohs Buried with their gold 
We've all pushed this thing along We've all been guided by our fear But the river sings a song We've gotta be quieter to hear It's in every child's face New and hopeful as a stem Best be gentle with this place Cause we're borrowing it from them Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone You carry it for a moment Time won't loan it to you for long You don't own it Pass it along Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone Carry it for a moment Time won't loan it to you for long You don't own it Pass it along That was um, Scott Cook, a Canadian... Uh, troubadour or a folk singer, pass it along, pass along a decent future to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, pass along a decent natural world to the future. We're not doing that, are we? No. <laughs> no, we are, we are heading down a very self-destructive path. Don't um, we have an ethical, a moral... We can't really say, oh, we're a small country, we're a small population, it doesn't matter. But ethically and morally it matters. And how can we talk about being one of the leaders of small nations and the leader of a third way when we don't have, we won't make ethical, moral choices when it comes to carbon, when it comes to climate change and the natural environment, which the earth depends on, but our grandchildren and great-grandchildren depended on it too. Well, I think it comes down to a question of leadership. And when we have two big parties scrapping it out at the moment, as as a a good article in Newsroom points out, um, scrapping it out to do very little, they are trying to hold on to what they perceive to be the middle ground. And and this is problematic because if, if we're only after political power, we're not concerned about future generations, then we are on a pathway to disaster because if we if we're not taking the action that's required to secure a future for our children and our grandchildren we're condemning them to 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 a climate hell and i'm not prepared to sit sit back and and wait for that we need to we need to shift the the conversation we need to talk about the risks that we're facing and the solutions that we can okay. propose to build resilience and to build thriving communities okay i've been reluctant to go into the risk we're facing on the radio to some extent and most of the people I've been involved except for Bob Lloyd who's quite fearless about the risks and somewhat pessimistic what are the risks, the real risks if we don't change well we know for example that increased volatility of our weather systems is is a result of the climate crisis climate breakdown so more extreme events affect our infrastructure and can can limit our trading can break 
can can break our ability to to shift things around, etc. So so it it presents problems to to business as usual. And that's tomorrow's risk. What about the day after tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. So so if we keep on if we keep on responding to crises as they emerge. We're not planning, we're not preparing, we're not building resilience. So we're simply responding. And and over time, that will wear down our ability to do anything, and, and it will break our ability to function. It'll break governance. So in that situation, we're in what you could describe as a collapse scenario, where there will be, there will be parts that work, but there'll be many parts that don't work anymore. We'll have problems delivering health services we'll have problems de- developing um delivering communication we'll have problems de- delivering any kinds of 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 central distributed services what about the fact that uh global warming actually has its own triggers you go past a certain point you lose control what happens to global warming don't we well, yes, and there are many tipping points that that triggers triggers that we we are aware of, and that we may be. Well, you may and be I may be aware of them, but I'm not sure the public's really aware of them, or they would be storming Parliament right now. Yes, <laughs> uh, it, it it seems to be a function of of humanity that for the most part we only respond to immediate crises rather than than look ahead and and this is problematic but that's why we need leadership in our political parties. but mostly it's not spilled out by the leadership or even by the press exactly how dangerous climate change can be to humanity no, that's true, and and in fact, I think that's part of the problem. It's part of the reason why Labour is being so um, cautious because National have been attacking Labour. They don't have any policies of their own, but they've been atta- they've been employing attack politics, and we've seen this around the world. We've seen the rise of Trumpism in in the US. We've seen Brexit in 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 the UK. We've seen we've seen Russia. Accusing Ukraine of of being of fascism and Ukraine of attacking Russia, when clearly, clearly it's a, it's a um, war crimes are being uh, have been committed and are continuing to be committed against Ukraine. So we're we're seeing the rise of really really destructive politics instead of a more cooperative, ethical framework for for society to function and thrive. And and this is this is um, causing in our own part of the world this is causing a sort of a a, a, a a breakdown in anything positive and a more of a sort of a, 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 a lock into as as cautious an approach as, as possible which of course doesn't include the action required to ensure climate climate justice for an increasingly impoverished and at-risk community or restore our ecosystem mm-hmm. services our eco eco um, ecological um, protection and, and and increased biodiversity it's not it's not helping nature either well how do you get beyond the three-year short-termism that uh, many governments seem to be locked into, even if they get re-elected, they, they just think about the three years ahead. I think it is time that we look to at shifting our democratic system to a four-year period because we've seen 
we're now in the um, re-election cycle. So we're in year three, and we're seeing the political parties all looking to to um, build their, their profile for re-election. And, and we're, we're wasting a year. We're wasting a year when we, we need to be reducing emissions. We're wasting a year when we really need to be providing for communities that have been um, livelihoods, lives that have been lost through Cyclone Gabriel and prior to that Cyclone Hail. And we, we need to be planning and preparing. We need to be um, doing dynamic adaptive pathway planning to ensure that next time it happens, because it will happen again and again and again next time, that we are better prepared, that we're providing services, that, that we have fewer people at risk, that we're able to bounce back faster. Otherwise, we, we, are, we are ensuring that our, our children and our grandchildren have nothing to look forward to. So the three-year term is, is short-termism, and it, and it encourages populist um, approach rather than thinking about our, our, our families, well, th thinking about whānau, thinking about our tamariki, our mokapuna, and, and ensuring that we can provide for them in the future. We need to be thinking about 100-year um, strategy to deliver for our community rather than this short-termism. We're talking with Scott Willis, a Green candidate for Tari electorate, <coughs> manager of... Um, Will's Advisory on Climate and Energy Challenges and a Director of Climate Navigator. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to Community or Chaos. So what do you think about the idea of the um, lowering the voting age to 16? Because they're the people that are going to be enduring the worst of this i fully support lowering the voting age voting age to 16 and i and i also support teaching civics in in high school and i think we have a very engaged youth um at least as engaged as our our older population at the other end of the spectrum and the what we know is that engaging youth early in the political process engages them for life and it is important to engage our youth in the big conversations about their future so these discussions need to be part of how we function as a community we we, we can't avoid politics anymore because politics involves the big decisions the 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 centralised processes that we, we function under, but we also make decisions in our communities and in our households. And so we need to have engaged youth as part of the political process. So make it make it 16. Why are we, why are we delaying this? I don't understand. Uh, is it politics? <laughs> <laughs> the... Um It takes a 75%. Does it, oh, is there, can you change the electoral law? You need more than 50%, don't you? 70%? 75%, I believe, yeah. yeah. So they have to. They need a super majority to. So they to, have to get the other major party to agree. But, 
But you don't get the the major party to agree by ignoring it. No, that's right. And so without having that conversation, we can't shift we can't shift things. I mean, look how long it took to get MMP. It didn't it didn't happen overnight. We needed to have that conversation for a while. And so if we sweep it under the carpet, we we delay action on this. Okay, there's been a recent report by the uh, Doolittle, it's a financial advisory, gave it uh, service. I think it's an international service. And they claim that New Zealand will be $64 billion better off by 2050 if decisive climate action is taken. But failing to act would shrink the economy by nearly $4.5 billion. Could you talk about this? Well, I think the Deloitte report is is really interesting because it, it, it shows that we have the ability to make significant impact and to be better off economically if we invest now in climate mitigation. So, you know, I spent much of last year working on energy policy and I I would love us to be able to implement solutions that are there, ready to be implemented now. We look at at our um, at our current approach, which is a think big approach to to energy system transformation, um, build Lake Onslow, and we can decarbonise our electricity system. Is the is the idea? Well, actually, that that's not going to be built. Even if it can be built, it's not going to be built by 2030. And in the meantime, we have a real need for distributed energy resources, not only to help decarbonise, but also to build resilient communities that would be investing in our in our emission redu- reducing our emissions profile and helping decarbonise our transport system and our businesses as well. And we we have knowledge about how to do this. Um, two-way flows in our electricity system can can function with smart grids, with um, uh, uh, microgrids and ensuring we have community wind where the, the energy dollar can circulate in the local economy, where we have um, connected our vehicles, our transport fleet to the electricity system, whether it's e-buses, electric trains or EVs and e-bikes. And th- those, those, those things are known. We know what we could do to invest. So we need, we need the government to adopt the policies that are already prepared and, and we can invest locally in reducing emissions and build resilience at the same time. And I just on that note, I, th- I think about um, the thin air, um, the, the power box that has been produced locally, which, which is a, a, essentially a containerized energy system that can be dropped off to remote locations to provide a power solution. It, it's, a, it's got a, a, the single-blade turbine produced here in Dunedin, Nautipoti, Dunedin, and it folds out a, 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 um, a, a, a whole lot of solar panels and has battery storage there as well to, to manage or to help um, build grid resilience. And that type of solution is, is stuff that we know. We have that at our fingertips. We're just not employing the solutions that are already there because we don't have the vision within government. Okay. The, um, I think one of the things we could have learned from Cyclone Gabriel, what's happening in Hawke's Bay, 
And also what happened in the Kaikoura earthquake is it's uh, food, actually supply of food, fresh vegetables and other food that we need is no, not necessarily safe or sustainable. That um, the link between the food that's grown in the North Island and the food we want to eat in the South Island is fragile. Uh, if you became um, a um, representative of the Tari electorate, how would you stand on safeguarding good horticultural land in um, around Altra and Moskill in that area? Um, and would you, as a person now, would you want to be pushing the Dedean City Council and the Regional Council to safeguard uh, horticulture or land as opposed to putting more houses on it? Uh, certainly. I think firstly we need to look to the uh, Natural and Built Environment Act, which is going to part one of the replacement acts for the Resource Management Act, and we need a flat-out ban on building residential property on flood hazard zones. So our most fertile soils out on the Tyree Plains are also flood hazard zones, and we need to be protecting those those high-class soils for food production, in particular, because it, that if we think think regionally, we think locally, we have fantastic food production potential in close proximity to a large urban area. That should be that should be treated with, with kid gloves. We need to be looking after those soils and ensuring that we can have market gardens producing food locally, seasonally, uh, organically, regeneratively to provide for, for our urban communities and provide an income so that we've got thriving rural communities. But, but let's not think about our rural areas just as food producing areas. They, they produce, yes, sure, food and fibre, but they also, also, as a space where we can do ecosystem restoration, so we can be cleaning up our waterways and, and ensuring that we are planting, supporting our, our rural communities to do those tasks. And that would that would we could use a market system that already exists, the emissions trading scheme, and develop bio bio units bio units that that can be used within the emissions trading scheme so using an existing market structure to encourage biodiversity restoration that's one one an, an additional way into food and fiber and then of course the other thing that happens in the rural zones is that we produce energy we produce energy from uh, great dams from wind farms from solar farms and that and and even geothermal production and that typically happens in our rural areas so for us to be able to diversify the rural economy and ensure we can build resilient regional um, systems we need to be supporting distributed energy resources in our rural zones and that requires legislative change to enable small-scale renewables such as wind and solar farms to be built rapidly without without problems without the huge cost to, to build it and we need market access to those smaller scale energy systems that, that can then be distributed through smart grids to build build resilient communities. Resilient communities need people too, don't they? 
Mm. And what we've seen in the last 30 years is more and more systems that keep people, particularly young families, in a community, like schools, like banks, uh, post office, all kinds of things that are peculiar to rural communities. Rural communities maybe depend on more than we do in cities. They've lost them. Do we need to reconstruct uh, infrastructure that's friendly toward rural communities? I think we do, but... but I'm not saying we can restructure exactly what we had before, but doesn't there need to be um, looking at making life easier for uh, people living in rural communities well, and I, also giving them a way to make a living? Yes, I think, I think an overarching rural policy that, that focused on developing and, and ensuring we had thriving rural communities would be a, a, a really critical piece of work. But, you know, in terms of what that would look like, what, what, what parts we would need, we would need to have good um, communications infrastructure so that rural communities are connected, so they're not distant in communication from others. And as we know, there are, there are many... Um, the internet is, is patchy, in many of our rural areas, so that that discourages people from from living there. We also need to ensure that there are a variety of jobs, so that people can would like to would like to settle and live, and and that that can be done through through ecosystem restoration, through energy farming, as well as food and fibre, and and when we have enough jobs we need we need the housing and we need we need the schools we need the shops we need the the services that can can service those larger populations and that's a that's a a a vision of a of of how we can support those farmers who are doing the right thing those people in those rural communities that that want to build um, a place for young people to to live and settle it's it's this again it's not rocket science. It requires a bigger, stronger Green Party and as part of the next government to deliver it, of course, because there are policies there that will get us there, but but we, we can't we can't just hope that the market's going to provide it. We need to provide direction. Don't we also need to provide a greater variety of ways of making a living in rural areas and a greater perhaps a greater variety of agriculture? I mean our agriculture's become much more narrow. We seem to be focused entirely on sending powdered milk to China, which is questionable now anyway. But what it means is that, um, for instance, Central Otago is much more adaptable to, to wool and sheep than to dairy cows. And there must be other things that can be done in areas like Central Otago and other rural areas. So don't we need to look at how we can encourage diversification? Yes. I mean, I think we have had the... the, the we've been seduced by the global industrial food system to produce for a global market and as a second thought to allow some of our production to be sold domestically. So that's why in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we pay international prices for all of our all of our produce. Well, that's interesting and because um, it costs a lot of money to 
send lamb or milk overseas. You first you have to change the product often, or you have to package it. Then you have to go through customs, and you have to get it there. Yet we pay the same price for those products, most commonly, as somebody living in France or China pays. Yes, I mean this is the, the an anomaly of the <laughs> of of the market. Um, people people will sell produce to the highest bidder when it's a, a, a an open market when it when the the market doesn't differentiate between local and and international and and this is a problem with our 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 food production um, considering Aotearoa New Zealand as the world's farm has meant that we are producing food for for forty million people and we're we're five million so we could adopt policies that for example ensured that we had um, prioritization for domestic domestic supply and domestic prices for our food and there are countries that for example have adopted the state the 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 government loaf of bread which is a a nutritious um, nutritious basic food product that um, that that we could we could mandate for we could mandate for um, supply of basic basic food produce for the domestic market. We used but, to produce enough wheat for almost all our bread. Yeah. I understand Japan still supplies rice to a high degree, and you go travel in Japan, even in the very small villages and, and small sections will have their rice paddocks going. Well, we saw the post-World War II, we saw that the, the, the EU pivot towards building food sovereignty um, for, well, food security, because what had been revealed through World War II was the fragility of, of trading systems and, and food supply to Britain in particular, when U-boats sunk great um, grain convoys. And so that, that, that pivot... Um, that pivot shifted, made it much more interesting for corporates to invest in the food system, gave them a, a, an insured income, and has driven the, the, the commodification and the globalization of, of food systems as well, which has enabled multinationals and food, um, uh, seed, fertilizer to, to rise up because food has become a, a profitable area. What we need now to do is to focus on ensuring that we can create livelihoods for our rural communities and food for our rural and urban communities through supporting our national agriculture rather than focusing on export. So we we do need to pivot away from simply hoping that the market will deliver and ensuring that we can build a food sovereign nation first and foremost. That doesn't mean we stop all export, but we, 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 we focus on supplying a healthy, healthy community, our, 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 our own, first and foremost. It seems to me we're quite good at talking about radical social change, uh, especially in la- talking about change in language and change of custom. But we, when it comes to, ch- to changing um, infrastructure for making a real change in 
for instance, economic equality or for sustainability, and these kind of things, which cost 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 taxation and real effort, we're not that good at. How do we change that? <laughs> we either change or change happens to us. <laughs> there isn't really there isn't really a choice. So I think the how to requires all of us to be engaged to talk to our family, friends, neighbors about the situation and the challenges we face and the solutions that are at hand. And and I think, you know, sometimes modeling that action or always modeling that action where possible um producing food, sharing food with our neighbours, growing what we can in our neighbourhoods, supporting mm. community initiatives, ensuring we have thriving communities in our, in our local, where, local area where mm. we have the most influence is, is one, one key part of that. But, of course, the other big part is that big system change, and that comes about through who we choose for government, who we buy from, who we protest against, ensuring that the bad we stop the bad and, and support the good. Okay. Sometimes they they meet, don't they? I mean, we're fairly good at things like community garden in Northview Valley and things like that. We need to see maybe that the cooperation that we give our neighbors and so on, it should be a model of how we should cooperate nationwide. Yes, definitely. And I think community gardens tend to be a fantastic social social um, event and, and activity and asset. Um, if we're thinking about actual nutrients and and um, and, and, and food, we, we might need to think about allotments and, and community supported agriculture where we can actually grow a good quantity of food locally and and still have part of that social that, that, that community building um, component involved. Is this your part of your positive dream for the future? Is this your... Yeah, my <laughs> part of my positive dream? Yes, indeed. <laughs> many, many years ago, I, I, um, I, I established, helped establish the, the, the Waitati Open Orchards and the um, Waitati Edible Gardens Group with, a, with the idea, the, the vision of food sovereignty. Um, there are people who have carried that on um, to a degree, but I think we can't we can't just be happy with small scale um, initiatives like community gardens. We need to scale it up and build food food sovereignty, um, food and energy resilience for our communities, transport options, etc. These are these are known 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 there's, with known pathways to get there. And I'm, I'm passionate about making sure we can get them built. <laughs> Thanks a lot, um, Scott, for coming on uh, Community Radio. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you for inviting me. And it's always a pleasure. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.